Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors over at Sojourn Heights, actually. It's good to be with you again. Um, and, and let me say this. Uh, thank you for sending Taylor on sabbatical this summer. Um, I, I didn't mean that as a joke, but, but really, thank you. Taylor, I hope you know that Taylor works hard for you. Um, he, and for all that he invests in you, I think it's good, and I think it's in your best interest to invest in, in him as well. So thank you for that. Um, and amen from over here. There you go. <laughs> Today we begin a new sermon series through the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. The first book of the Bible is called Genesis. Uh, Genesis lays a firm and, and really a masterful foundation for everything that, that follows in Scripture. The themes that are introduced in Genesis continue to unfold all the way through the life of Jesus, the ministry of the early church, and, and on into the future that we are longing for and that all of creation is groaning for. In the same way, the story of the Exodus is foundational to the story of the Bible. In fact, Exodus chapter one begins right where Genesis left off. The narrative tells the story of Israel's divinely orchestrated deliverance from slavery in Egypt for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdom in the midst of the nations. But more than that, the story of the Exodus reveals for all God's people, both then and now, what it means to be redeemed by God and what it means to serve him and worship him. So the first half of the book of Exodus takes the form of a gripping narrative. This is the story of Israel's deliverance. From there, things slow down a bit. I think we can admit that. Things slow down because God blesses Israel. Yes, he blesses Israel by giving them the law. As a kingdom people, he teaches them how to live. And as a priestly people, he teaches them how to worship. And so as we begin, I, I want to I say two key things. And I want, I want us to remember this for the rest of the series. Number one, the Exodus is our story. This is not the history of some irrelevant ancient foreign nation. This is the history of God's holy nation into which we Gentiles have been grafted. The opening books of the Bible are the ancestry.com of the church. This is our family tree, our family history. And number two, the Exodus is for our instruction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that the Exodus happened for our instruction. Paul explicitly invites us to read the story of the Exodus and apply it directly to our lives as 21st century Christians. So, the Exodus is our family history, but the Exodus is also our present reality. All right. At the end of, book, at the, end of the book of Genesis, Jacob's 12 sons are living in Egypt. These are the great-grandsons of Abraham. And one of the sons... Joseph has ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, Joseph reminds his brothers that Egypt 
is not their home. Their hope is not in the land of Egypt. Their future is not in the land of Egypt. God has promised to give them the land of Canaan. And that's how the book of Genesis closes. Now, we're going to read from Exodus 1, beginning in verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pythom and Ramses. I wanted to make a joke about the Ramses there, but I don't see them. So I won't talk behind their back. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So the people of Israel have been doing what God commanded them to do in the book of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. We see that exact phrase in Genesis 1, 8, 9, 17, 28, 35, 47, and 48. Be fruitful and and multiply. That's one of the themes in Genesis that unfolds through the whole Bible. But Pharaoh starts to get nervous. Why? What does he fear? Verse 10, lest they multiply. The people of Israel have already multiplied. Pharaoh is worried that they will continue multiplying, and so he enslaves them. He afflicts them and oppresses them. And what happens? Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Oops. Despite Pharaoh's plan to limit the growth of the people of Israel, despite their affliction and bondage, the purposes of God continue to be fulfilled in and through his people. His people multiply and and they spread abroad. They spread abroad. Genesis 28, 14 This is God reiterating his covenant promises to Jacob. Genesis 28, 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So again, despite affliction and bondage, God's purposes continue to be fulfilled. More than that, God's promises continue to be fulfilled. Pharaoh cannot thwart the promises of God. The mightiest kingdoms of this world cannot thwart the promises of God. His people multiply and spread abroad. And in so doing, all the families of the earth are blessed. Remember, the the people of Israel will be delivered out of slavery in Egypt for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdom in the midst of the nations. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through them. Hopefully the application here is rather obvious. 
God is always accomplishing his will in us and through us, always. Kings and kingdoms may oppose his will and afflict his people, but God will bring his purposes to completion anyway. He grows his people even in the midst of suffering and sometimes especially in the midst of suffering. Now that that doesn't mean we go looking for persecution. It doesn't mean we celebrate or ignore the plight of the 245 million Christians around the world who live under heavy persecution. But it does mean that we can trust him in the midst of suffering. He is always in control. He is always more powerful. He is always orchestrating his divine will. He is always taking what man means for evil and turning it into something good. Again, Israel's hope is not in the land of Egypt. Israel's future is not in the land of Egypt. As Joseph reminded his brothers, God will visit them and bring them up out of the land of Egypt. But for now, things get worse. In verse 15, Pharaoh intensifies the oppression. He conspires with some midwives to kill every male child born to the people of Israel. But the midwives refuse to go along with his plan. And once again, verse 20, the people multiplied and grew very strong. So Pharaoh issues a command, not just to the midwives, but to all the people of Israel. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. And it's here that we are introduced to Moses. Moses was the man called by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses was called by God to lead the Exodus. But I want to make the case this morning that Moses actually experiences two personal Exoduses prior to leading Israel out of Egypt. All right? The first Exodus of Moses, chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, that's Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. That's Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So, The first exodus of Moses is actually an anti-exodus. Moses is saved through water out of Israel and into Egypt. 
80 years later, Moses will be saved through water out of Egypt and into Israel. Moses' mother and sister could not have drawn up a better plan. It works to perfection. Remember, Pharaoh commanded that every newborn son be cast into the Nile. Well, technically, they obey Pharaoh. Moses is cast into the Nile. Here at Sojourn Galleria, you might say that Moses was baptized as an infant. I don't, I don't get to say that at Sojourn Heights, so I took my chance. But in the end, he is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, who then pays his biological mother to nurse him. It's a pretty sweet deal. Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because she drew him out of the water. The name Moses means he draws out. It's the perfect name for a baby boy who will one day grow up to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, to draw the people of Israel out of Egypt. So, God is not mentioned within these verses, but the narrative makes it clear that he is sovereignly, providentially orchestrating these events. God saves Moses through water, out of slavery, and into royalty. God saves Moses through water, out of slavery, and into royalty. That is an exodus-shaped salvation. Okay, the second exodus of Moses, verses 11 to 15. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So, One day, Moses is walking out amongst the people of Israel, looking upon their burdens and taking pity on them. And he sees an Egyptian beating up an Israelite. He kills the Egyptian to save the Israelite, flees, and goes on to spend 40 years in the wilderness. This this clearly foreshadows future events. When Moses eventually returns to Egypt to lead Israel out, the Egyptians will be destroyed to save the Israelites who will flee and spend 40 years in the wilderness. Here's the point. Over the course of 80 years, God fashions Moses into an Exodus-shaped person. God has demonstrated his sovereign ability to orchestrate Exodus-shaped events, which ought to build Moses' confidence for what was coming. When it comes time to take a step of faith, Moses ought to be able to look back on God's faithfulness and say, I've been here before. God is in control and I can trust him. And if we learn to make the Exodus story our story, then we get to look back on God's faithfulness and say, we've been here before. God is in control and we can trust him. 
Not only that, but learning to make the Exodus story our story prepares us to encounter the Jesus of the New Testament. The New Testament reveals Jesus to be the greater Moses. Consider the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. This is, this is an overview of Matthew chapters two to five. The people of Israel are facing oppression. An evil king is trying to kill the baby boys. So Mary and Joseph take Jesus on an anti-exodus into the land of Egypt. Eventually, Jesus departs from Egypt, headed back for Israel. He passes through water at his baptism. He spends 40 days in the wilderness and he delivers the law of God from a mountain. So like Moses, Jesus experiences multiple personal exoduses. Jesus is an exodus-shaped person. And all of this is preparing him for the cross where he will deliver God's people from their bondage to sin. Jesus offers an exodus-shaped redemption. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of Christ. That is an exodus-shaped redemption. The implication is that we cannot fully understand the gospel if we do not fully understand the exodus. And because the gospel itself is exodus-shaped, that means there is much for us to learn and apply to our lives as we study the book of Exodus over the next few months. We, the church, have been given the responsibility of bearing witness to an exodus-shaped gospel. All around us, there are people suffering oppression at the hand of a cruel taskmaster. It's the prince of darkness. It's the pharaoh of this world. They need to know that the greater Moses has come. There is freedom to be found in him. And, and even though it may require passing through the wilderness... We serve and worship a God who cares for us and ministers to us along the way. A God whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. The world needs to know that the God of Israel stands ready to liberate them from their bondage to sin and death and to lead them triumphantly into a land flowing with milk and honey. The world needs to hear about this freedom and that's why we have been formed just like Israel, we have been formed into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. We are former slaves, humbly laying down our lives to tell the entire world where to, where to find true freedom. Think about that in terms of the sacraments. Jesus gave two sacraments to his church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both of them are exodus-shaped. In baptism, we pass through the sea. We celebrate the destruction of our enemies in the floodwaters. We are born again from death into life. We have been cleansed and purified, and we join the kingdom of priests. 
At the Lord's Supper, we remember the body and blood of our Passover lamb. We partake of bread like Israel in the wilderness. We partake of wine like Israel in the land, in the land of promise. We feast because we have been set free. And so whenever we baptize someone or whenever we share in the Lord's Supper, we bear witness as former slaves who have anchored our hope in a more glorious future. It's an Exodus-shaped sacrament. And so again, the, the Exodus is more than just history. The Exodus is our present reality. And the sacraments usher us into that Exodus-shaped reality. God's people have been liberated. And through us, through our following in the footsteps of Jesus, God is liberating the rest of creation. And that's why our priorities as the church are Exodus-shaped priorities. We, we are former slaves who have entered into royalty. So we're kings and queens, but we're also former slaves. That means we stand up for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the enslaved and the migrant and the homeless. We use whatever power and influence the Lord has given us as kings and queens, and we steward that power and that influence on behalf of those who have no power and have no influence. We cannot fully understand the gospel if we do not fully understand the Exodus. So over the next few months, let's be on the lookout for these themes. Let's make the Exodus story our story and let's become more Exodus-shaped than we were yesterday. Let's learn to reinterpret our circumstances, both the good and the bad, in terms of the Exodus. We have been liberated, but we are not yet home. We're on our way. We have anchored our hope in a more glorious future and we are serving everyone along the way because the nations need to know. We've been here before. God is in control and we can trust him no matter what. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, thank you for being a covenant-keeping God all through, the, all through the millennia. We praise you for your faithfulness and we say that you are mighty to save. Jesus, our greater Moses, thank you for walking the path set before us. Lead us through the wilderness. Nourish us, keep us, we trust you. And Holy Spirit, make us a holy and fruitful kingdom of priests. And may the nations know through our witness that freedom is available in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.